You are listening to Revolver Podcast. Want to grow your own weed but not sure where to get the seed? Go to bcbuddepot.com. For nearly 15 years, BC Bud Depot has been building one of the world's most comprehensive seed banks, offering over 50 strains of top quality cannabis to suit every grower's needs, including multiple award-winning strains like Godbud, The Perps, BC Blueberry, Girl Scout Cookies, and more. In fact, BC Bud Depot's genetics have won over 30 different cannabis awards over the past decade. So you know you're dealing with a recognized industry leader that will deliver you some of the most potent, flavorful flowers on the planet. They ship worldwide, offering fast, discreet delivery at reasonable prices. All online orders are processed within 48 hours and are packaged and mailed with the utmost stealth and safety in mind. And if for some reason your order gets lost, damaged, or confiscated, BC Bud Depot will resend it at no extra charge guaranteeing that every customer receives what they paid for. Whether you're looking for indica or sativa, indoor or outdoor, feminized or auto-flowering, BC Bud Depot has the seeds you need at a price you can handle. But don't take my word for it. Check out their extensive library of award-winning genetics for yourself at bcbuddepot.com and type in promo code BLAZIN420 at checkout to receive 10% off your order. BC Bud Depot home of cannabis champions since 2002. Please check your local state and national laws before ordering. It's time to roll up those joints, pack those bowls, and fire up those nails. Because you're listening to Blazing with Bobby Black. Greetings, Blackalites. This is the infamous Bobby Black welcoming you to another edition of Blazin. You know, anyone who has used drugs regularly uh, in their lives has probably been a smuggler in their own small way at some point in their lives. Whether it was sneaking a bag of weed into an airplane in their underwear, uh, a few ecstasy pills in your Advil bottle, or maybe a sheet of acid in the pages of a book. And if you have done that, odds are you've experienced that manic mixture of terror and excitement that inevitably overcomes you when, in the midst of your illicit action, you have a brush with the law and are on the precipice of being busted. Now imagine that, instead of an ounce of weed or an eight ball of coke, it was over 600 pounds of weed or 100 kilos of coke, and you can begin to understand what my guest today has experienced. Arguably the most infamous drug smuggler in our history, he was portrayed by actor Donnie Depp in the 2001 film Blow, based on his life. I am honored to welcome to the show, Boston George Jung. George, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Bobby. So, since my uh, listeners are probably most familiar with you from the film, I'd like to just kind of start off with that. Um, how close to the truth was the movie, would you say? And what did they get wrong, and what did they get right? Well, in in the beginning, when you know Hollywood contracted to do the film, uh, we didn't have Johnny Depp, and and but we had had several screenwriters and. Uh, one, Nick Cassavetes, for for example, and uh, the son of John Cassavetes, and then they were looking for for an artist to, to portray me, my character, and 
they started to I, I started to read some of the the screenplays and a lot of it was you know Hollywood fabulosa <laughs> you know basically you know a lot a lot of uh, misinformation and bullshit just to fabulize fabulize the film and you know I didn't I didn't care for, for any of the screenplays <clears throat> and and finally Johnny Depp came on board and uh, he didn't care for them either. <laughs> uh, so he he called a meeting. I was I was in uh, Otisville, New York, the federal prison there, and we had a uh, a special visit. And the director came, and uh, <clears throat> and Johnny Depp was there, and he he said, "I'm not going to do this film. You can take the five million dollars you gave me and shove it." He <laughs> said, "Unless you do it the real way, and the guy and the real guy is standing right in front of you. If you can't listen to him and make it a true life story." He said, I'm out. And so, of course, the director said, okay, we'll change it, we'll change it, we'll do it your way, John. And uh, and <laughs> then they left, and Johnny was still there. And, and I said, did you really mean it about shoving the $5 million? And he said, fuck no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway, it, it evolved into, you know, a serious film, and it was true to my life, approximately 95%. And it came out exactly like we wanted it to. And and you were happy with with Depp's portrayal of you. You felt he captured your personality pretty well. Well, I met with him for about twenty hours, and and uh, these special visits that that they set up. And basically, what he did is he uh, he just wanted me to walk and talk while he sat there and uh, chain smoke, watching me and listening to me. <laughs> And after about, I don't know, the, the 12th visit, I came out and I said, I said, I'm not, I'm not doing this any longer. I said, if you ain't done it now, you, 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 you're never going to have it. And he said, I got it. <laughs> and I said, okay. And then I saw some of the, some of the clips from, uh, from his portrayal of me. And, uh, I mean, it was amazing. He just absorbed himself into my character and became me, really. Of course, we're both existentialists in a way, and we, we love the same uh, literature and art. And, uh, and even though he was much younger than me, and, you know, I felt that we were, we were an integral part of each other, and somehow the gods of destiny brought us together to make this film. Cool. Well, uh, what was your reaction when you first saw the film? Were you were you uh, joyous about it? Were you sad? Did it bring back bad memories, good memories? Well, to tell you the truth, I I saw a lot of clips from it, and I never actually sat down and watched the whole film. Really? Because, yeah, because I I felt that I didn't have to watch the, the entire film because I lived it. <laughs> sure. And you know my life was was luck combined with luck and gamble and, and you know and the film was an art form and whatever conscious and unconscious content contrasted into the film uh, along with conscious material was you know inside my entire being so I just you know walked to the edge and, and let the film fly. Cool. Needless to say, there was a lot from your life that wasn't featured in the movie. I mean, it's only two hours for, you know. Uh, for example, in the beginning, the film shows you as a little boy going to work with your dad 
then it kind of jumps ahead to smoking pot in California with your friend Tuna. Uh, obviously, a lot happened in between there uh, that wasn't included. Uh, tell me a little about uh, how you first got turned on to pot. How uh, you know? How old were you? What were the circumstances? Well, it's kind of ironic. I didn't even smoke cigarettes till I was <clears throat> 25 years old. Uh, but I made up for that with Camel's non-filter, obviously. And, <laughs> and so when we went out to California, I went to the University of Southern Mississippi and then to the University of Tennessee. And, and at that time, as far as I knew, pot was virtually non-existent in the early 60s and in the college campuses. It wasn't until, you know, mid, mid-60s that it started to become prevalent. But unbeknownst to me, it was, it was you know, completely prevalent in California. And so when Tuna and I got out there, you know, we we made new friends and, and started a new life and everybody was smoking pot. And, uh, hmm. and they, I couldn't inhale it. Then. And so they had to make a makeshift water pipe. This is before the the days of, of now. The, high, the pipes are so high tech that it's incredible. <laughs> yeah. It's made out of a, a red mountain wine bottle and some, uh, you know, Two plastic tubes and and so and that's how I I got into smoking pot and pot was okay I I liked it and it was fine but I, it it kind of laid me back in, into a, a semi coma mood and you know some people pot makes them up higher and higher and with me it it just brought me down you know I was more of an energy guy and and I was also looking for you know. A, uh, a way to to make money to live the California lifestyle, which I'd never seen before, and it was overwhelming to me. So <clears throat> we started uh, transporting the pot back east <clears throat> to the colleges. All my buddies were going to school back in the east, and uh, you know we started to generate uh, a considerable sum of cash. But because back in those days, if you graduated from college, you you started at ten thousand a year. <laughs> I don't yeah. know if anyone knows that now. You know, and a, a blue collar worker made five thousand. And when we started making ten, twenty thousand, thirty thousand a trip, we were taking the pot from California to Massachusetts. You know, it was a considerable amount of money, and my lifestyle changed, you know, drastically. So that's basically how it happened. And actually, the truth of it was that a friend of mine was taking restaurant management at the University of uh, Massachusetts. And he came out to work in the Mark Hopkins for the summer in San Francisco. Uh, you know, it was part of his, uh, his curriculum and restaurant management. And he stopped at my house in Manhattan Beach and I had a punch bowl full of pot there. And, you know, I was just sitting on the table and everybody just rolled a joint whenever they wanted. And, and he said, uh, Jesus Christ, where did you get all this? And he said, how much is it? How much you pay? And I, you know, I said, like, about, $60 a kilo, and he, he said, you know, it's this stuff cost in Massachusetts, and I said, well, I need some, like, 400 <laughs> And I said, let's go into business, Frank. <laughs> That's, you know, it was a a lot of uh, serendipity and happenstance, and, and, you know, it just all seemed to fall into place, and we pulled the circuit breakers, and, and we, we went forward. Cool. You know, the, another thing that uh, I noticed wasn't in the film, and I read this online, is it true that you got kicked out of the Armory for selling weed to fellow soldiers and then didn't have to go to Vietnam? Is that true? Right. And I, I got a uh, general discharge under honorable conditions. 
you know, nobody wanted to go to Vietnam, and uh, and uh, everybody, all my buddies that came back, some of them came back, you know, physically damaged and, and a lot of, you know, post-traumatic stress damage, and, you know, and they, they, they all, you know, said, please don't go, don't go if you don't have to, and, but, you know, I was a, uh, I served my, my basic training at Fort Ord and what have you, and, and I was out of the Pasadena National Guard, and they were gonna—they were activating the National Guards. Uh, there was a big difference between you know a full-time soldier and a National Guard guy, and most of the National Guard guys were getting bumped off like flies over there. Wow, yeah, that, that doesn't sound fun at all. So, okay, so you moved to California, uh, you got the nickname Boston George, and then you started uh, sending, uh, you know, shipping pot back to the uh, New England, the Northeast, and making a nice profit. And then at some point, you scaled up the operation and started flying it in from Mexico yourself, right? Right. It was my idea, because I, I was into the peak experience, I was into the thrill of it, and, you know, beyond the business aspect. So it was my idea to get out to Mexico and get the pot direct and bring it across the border. And, and so I took flying lessons uh, and I met an old pilot. Uh, his name was George also. And, and, and he showed me, you know, landing strips out in the desert and, you know, how easy it was to cross the border. He called, I'm going to give you the key to the Sultan's jewel box, kid. And, and we you know, flew back and crossed back and forth across the border, Mexicali in broad daylight. Uh, and, you know, there was no interference, nothing. In fact, they didn't even have a, a drug enforcement agency until 1974. So it was basically easy to do that. But when we first went to Mexico, like, my buddies who were, you know, came out from the East Coast and, and, and they, they had somewhat agreed with me to get out of Mexico and, and try to find a connection. We didn't have one. And so they, they said, well, where will we go? And I said, We'll go to Puerto Vallarta. Well, I chose Puerto Vallarta because there was a, a movie made by, uh, with Richard Burton called, uh, Night of the Iguana mm -hmm. and Ava Gardner. And, and I, I loved Richard Burton as an actor. And, I, and so I chose Puerto Vallarta and I, I had no, we couldn't speak Spanish. We had no idea where the hell we were going. We just went. And after about two weeks, of trying to find a connection, they were getting like uptight with my idea. Well, let's go back to what we were doing. Everything was okay. This is hopeless. We'll never find a connection down here. We don't even speak Spanish. And look, you know, I begin, my ego began to shrink. And I, I, you know, the more they, they bastardized my idea. And we were sitting in a, uh, like a Casablanca bar uh, overlooking the <clears throat> Banderas Bay in Puerto Vallarta. And they were going to go home the next day. <clears throat> This little yellow Volkswagen with flowers painted on it pulled up on front. And, and you know, the bar door was open. We could see the Volkswagen. I've got this cute little blonde. And she was American. And she came right up to the table and she said, I want to sit down and talk to you guys. And she said, my name is Linda. And uh, I said, okay. She said, us. And uh, she said, you know, We've been watching you guys for about two weeks, and you've asked just about everybody except the police chief for some pot. <laughs> she said, and she said, I think you need help. She said, I'm going to help you. I live with the, one of the biggest connections in Puerto Vallarta. And she said, I'm going to take you to meet him now. 
and that's how that happened. Wow. And you, you actually you so, said you you were a big fan so, of Richard Burton. You ended up meeting him at some point, didn't you, down there? Well, I eventually bought a house overlooking in Banderas Bay up in Gold Gringo Gouch behind the cathedral right next door to Liz Taylor and Richard Burton. Wow. That's cool. Uh, you know, that was kind of a – it was a thrill. And he liked to drink and I liked to drink. So we we got along pretty well. <laughs> cool. So you, you started your uh, shipments from Mexico into the U.S. And, you know, it's hard for uh, young people nowadays to understand or comprehend this probably. But like you said, back then, in that day and age before computers and the Internet and body scanners and all that other stuff, you used to be able to travel back and forth in and out of the country across borders pretty undetected and unmolested, right? I hate to admit this, but it was extremely easy. Okay? <laughs> I mean, no, you're right. The technology wasn't there. Uh it was, it was all happening so fast that the border wasn't tight like it is now, and they didn't have surveillance or, and no radar or whatever. And the truth of the matter is that the small plane's moving at, you know, 160 knots or whatever, and there's thousands and hundreds of thousands of them all over. And even if they see the, see a blip on the radar, I mean, they don't, they won't scramble, you know, a fleet of jets or whatever against it. It's only for planes that are moving, you know, high speed, supersonic speed, you know, that are entering the country and don't declare themselves. So, but it was really easy and it wasn't a problem. And, you know, I happen to have been born into that era in the 60s and I never told anybody how easy it was. Like, we kept it, <laughs> you know, and that's a, a secret. Yeah. <laughs> now, I have my time, you know, I'm an old man, and I'm out of the thrill of the game, so. Yeah. So, like, what was an average shipment for you, and, like, what was, a what was like, the biggest shipment that you could remember? A pot? Yeah. We started moving it as a single-engine plane, and then, and then twin-engine beach crafts, and then we secured plane, twin-engine plane uh, called uh, a Lockheed Lodestar, uh, Beach craft, and, and you were able to carry like several several tons in it. And you know, we didn't get any bigger than that because we had to load it in a motorhome on the dry lake bed. And what you promise is that you bulk out before you weigh out. Okay, I mean, you still have, the plane can still carry more weight, but it can't. You know, it can't fit the bulk inside. Yeah. But but several tons it was considerable amount to move, and then. During the rainy season, we used um, several yachts and fishing boats and what have you because you can't land in the mountains of Mexico in the rainy season. And so having that, uh, the thrill, the opiate of doing it, and so it just conceived other methods of uh, how to get it there. <laughs> yeah. When you were smuggling weed, were you ever aware of other smugglers that were working, or was it really an isolated thing? Because I know there was a lot of other like smugglers, like Howard Marks and and the High Times founder Tom Fassad was a pot smuggler with the planes and stuff. Were you guys aware of each other at all, or was it really insulated? Do you know what? When the season opened up in Mexico, the harvest season, and he went down to to Mexico, these places, Culiacan or, or Zihuatanejo or and, and Puerto Vallarta and Mazalan and whatever, you'd see all of these guys down there. You, you know, one look at, at 
at each other and, and every we all know what we're doing. <laughs> it was like you know that we all had that gleam in our eye, and it was like a big uh, reunion every year, the harvest season. Yeah, in my mind, like in my fantasy, in my mind, I picture this like underground smugglers club where you guys are all sitting around trading stories and drinking. I'm, I'm sure that probably wasn't the case, though. Well, you know, several times it was, but everybody was kind of busy and doing a thing. But we spent a lot of time drinking in the beach and whatever and, the, and interacting, you know, on a casual basis. But I knew what they were doing and they knew what I was doing, but we didn't want to, you know, involve ourselves in each other's business, you know, because it was our, our, our private industry within ourselves. And, you know, but what people don't know won't hurt you. Sure, sure. So this went on, obviously, for, for quite a while until, I guess, around 1974, right, when you got busted in Chicago? Well, actually, I got busted earlier than that. <clears throat> but I jumped bail and spent several years on the run. And then, of course, my mother turned me in and uh, I went to Danbury Federal Prison in Connecticut. And in those days, they didn't have the mandatory drug sentencing. They had, if you got five years, you did one thirty a sentence for a nonviolent crime, and you got 20, you did 20 months, which was virtually nothing. And, I mean, compared to today's sentencing, where you get 10 days a year off, and, you know, you do like 10 or 15 years, which is tragic, you know. And hopefully that'll change with the legalization coming and everything. I want some of these kids out of jail who've been there for a long time. Yeah. But they uh, gave me as a cellmate and Danbury, a Colombian kid. And there were hardly, I think there were only like half a dozen Hispanics in the entire prison population in Danbury, which is not like today because. Most of the smugglers were, you know, you know, were Americans in those days. And, you know, I met some, some major players in there and, and, but they gave me Carlos from Columbia as a cellmate. And, uh, of course we began talking. What do you, what do you hear for? Da, 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 da. He was there for stealing cars and shipping them to Columbia and, and reselling them. And he asked me and I said, you know, I'm here for flying pot across the border. To, and, he said, do you know anything about cocaine? And I said, well, I've tried it several times. I said, I said, what do you tell me about it? And I, I said, how much does it cost on Columbia? And he said, like three to 5,000 a kilo. And I said, what does a kilo cost in the United States? And he said, $60,000. <laughs> I looked at him and I said, tell us, I think you and I are going to become very good friends. <laughs> Wow. Well, um, I know we, we need to take a quick break, but we're going to get to all the good Coke years coming up right after this break. So stay tuned, everyone. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with more from Boston George Young. Want to grow your own weed, but not sure where to get the seed? Go to bcbuddepot.com. For nearly 15 years, BC Bud Depot has been building one of the world's most comprehensive seed banks, offering over 50 strains of top-quality cannabis to suit every grower's needs, including multiple award-winning strains like God Bud, The Perps, BC Blueberry, Girl Scout Cookies, and more. In fact, BC Bud Depot's genetics have won over 30 different cannabis awards over the past decade. So you know you're dealing with a recognized industry leader that will deliver you some of the most potent, flavorful flowers on the planet. 
They ship worldwide, offering fast, discreet delivery at reasonable prices. All online orders are processed within 48 hours and are packaged and mailed with the utmost stealth and safety in mind. And if for some reason your order gets lost, damaged, or confiscated, BC Bud Depot will resend it at no extra charge, guaranteeing that every customer receives what they paid for. Whether you're looking for indica or sativa, indoor or outdoor, feminized or auto flowering, BC Bud Depot has the seeds you need at a price you can handle. But don't take my word for it. Check out their extensive library of award-winning genetics for yourself at bcbuddepot.com and type in promo code BLAZIN420 at checkout to receive 10% off your order. BC Bud Depot, home of cannabis champions since 2002. Please check your local, state, and national laws before ordering. All right, and we are back here on Blazin with the infamous pot and cocaine smuggler, Boston George, George Young. So before the break, you had just met your future partner, Carlos, in uh, Danbury Prison, and uh, you guys were discussing cocaine um, and how uh, how to make some money with it. One of the things in the movie that was different, I guess, than real life is in the movie, the guy's name was Diego rather than Carlos. Do you know why they why they changed his name? Because uh, he was a, a president and, and he had to get uh, to sign a release, okay? Uh. And in order to use his names, and, and they, the last thing they want when they're making a movie is, is to, you know, have a, a somebody file a lawsuit and they can shut down filming because the films are bonded. And and so any yeah. anyone that, they can't get to sign a release. They they just change the names. Right, gotcha. So it was because of Carlos yeah. and meeting him that you switched gears from smuggling pot to smuggling cocaine. How did your life change when you switched? My life became electrified. I mean, <laughs> it, it changed like one eighty, and, and you know, suddenly I was making ten million dollars a a week easier and more and I mean at that time it's a fortune it still is and you know in the thrill of it it became more intense it was high a magnum opus and a melodramatic and you know it was like an opiate that I got caught up and it's like a a gambler who uses the money as as just a tool I'm pretty sure the money just became a tool to play play the thrill game and there was also a business. And as time wore on, it became more violent and more intense. And I sometimes asked myself what the hell I was doing there, a kid from Wayne, Massachusetts. But I was really into the, you know, the thrill of it. And, you know, and I always felt that if you unravel, you can always re-ravel. And, and it was a constant unraveling and, and re-raveling. And, it was a, a fantasy life, and, and eventually, all good things come to an end, as, as it, you know, as the poets say. You just don't know when, and you know, they fake can deal some terrible cards to you. And I think everybody knows that just spending twenty years in prison is a terrible card. <laughs> but I overcame that too, and it, I'm sitting here talking to you at seventy-four, <laughs> and. When I shave and look in the mirror, I don't, I don't see see the same kid anymore. And you know, I see an old guy, and I just have to smile. 
Well, happy that you uh, made it this far, George. So you were talking about the how the violence, how that was one of the changes that happened when you switched from pot to coke. And I saw that you had said in an interview with Frontline that the marijuana business is done with a handshake and the cocaine business is done with a gun. So all the violence, do you remember a specific incident of violence that really shocked you for the first time and made you say like, geez, what the hell have I gotten myself into? Well, I've seen some, you know, some violence in Mexico, but believe it or not, in the 60s, there wasn't that much violence in Mexico in the industry. It was a lot of American kids going down and buying, you know, pot from the Indians and getting across the border. But I had, you know, there were certain incidents of violence, but, you know, when you're playing with hundreds of millions of dollars and they're moving money around on pallets with there's so much money they don't count it, they weigh it. It becomes a, a major problem, uh, you know, because flies do come to honey and, and the money was the honey. And and the name of the game was that you had to protect that and you had to protect the product because there are a lot of violent people out there that wanted to take that product from you. And, and if you didn't protect that product and you lost it, uh, I mean, you were as good as dead anyway. Yeah. Well, I want to talk a little about the nuts and bolts of uh, the logistics of the whole cocaine era of your career. For those who are listening who aren't familiar or haven't seen the movie, uh, you were a key player in the Medellin drug cartel, which was Pablo Escobar's cartel, which was the largest in history, I would imagine, at the time. And uh, you, you were reportedly responsible for around 85% of the cocaine smuggled into America. Is that is that right? Well, me and... And Pablo and, and a group of other people. It wasn't just me being totally responsible, but but I initiated the flight routes and how to get it across. And to reiterate, uh, there wasn't a drug enforcement agency until 1974, and, and still they were behind the eight ball when, when they were created. And when they, after uh, doing their research, they they were astounded. They couldn't believe it. You know, there were ships <laughs> off of off uh, of government cutting uh, off of Miami and unloading, you know, bales and bales and bales of pot and, like, cigarette boats and, like, the whole economy of self-flower was fueled by the drug industry. Uh, I mean, that's really true, and, and it was incredible, and they were astounded. But, of course, Uncle Sam has more resources than any country in the, in the world, and they caught up, and what happened is that it became more and more difficult, and as the violence increased, especially in Colombia, in in the streets of Miami and whatever, the the more enforcement came on board, the more agents and the more you know police officers became aware, and everybody, and it became a, a high tech throw game to play. <clears throat> they changed the sentencing guidelines, and before you could always get bail and get out, and then they wouldn't get bail. And, and, and became, the game became dangerous. The more players in the game, the more dangerous the game and, and ruthless it became. By the beginning, there weren't that many players in the game, and so it made it easier to do, and, and you didn't have as much pressure on you. But as it wore on, and people that were playing it for a long time, you begin to get this feeling that, you're walking towards a cliff and you're getting closer and closer and the older you get and the more you play it, the odds are running out at the crap table on you. But some of the smart, really smart ones 
did it as a business and get, got in and got out from very few, and the others were caught up in the thrill of it. They were thrill seekers. And those are the ones that basically, you know, ended up in prison or dead. And, and in a way, in the back of your mind, your subconscious, you know that that's going to happen to you, but you keep playing. It's like the guy sitting at the casino who starts with five million, he's winning and winning and winning and winning, and walks out the door days and days later and, and has to sell his car to get home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's 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 play it's a play a game of fate, you know, and like like internet, you lust for the thrill of it and lust can blow your mind and most of your fuses. And of course you can find everything from screaming in vain to wishing that the hell you were never born. But you know, but you keep playing and it's a it's a you know, it's a bit of weirdness and it's sometimes the gods of destiny just turn their heads and walk away in shame on you. And that's how it is. I can understand the allure. I mean, uh, one of my favorite scenes in the movie, I would say most people probably would agree, is that scene when you guys have an entire house just piled with cash. It, was that uh, an exaggeration for the sake of the movie, or did that really happen? And if it did, about about <laughs> yeah, how much cash a, do you think was in that house? How much cash? Probably $25 million. Wow. There was so much money. The money, you know what? The money became a burden, a problem. I mean, I remember one time that we had this house on Cape Cod, and it was you know on a deserted beach and a private road, and everybody had left, and I I stayed because of the cash that was there, and I ran out of cigarettes, and about two miles away was a little general store, and I was sitting there and you know jonesing for a pack of Camels non-filter and. I began to, to laugh, and I said, I've got millions of dollars, and I can't even walk up to the street and get a pack of cigarettes. <laughs> I'm trapped here. <laughs> I mean, and it was, you know, it was almost ludicrous in a way. Yeah, for sure. You know, there's a similar problem going on in the pot industry now, even the legal pot industry with cash, because the the federal government still doesn't recognize the the legality, so they can't use the banking system. So all these dispensaries and all these growers and everybody who's making all these millions of dollars from weed legally, technically in in different states, but they can't. They have nothing to do with all the cash. It's a similar problem. Until they do something, you know, about it and. You know, and the federal government legalizes it. Of course, the banks want to legalize it. Everybody wants to legalize it. And it's going to all depend on who's elected the next president of the United States and who he picks as an attorney general. And I know that Wall Street is just waiting to jump into the legalization game. And, you know, they usually make the wheels turn. And once they come on board, you can bet that they'll vote to legalize it and make it, you know, a, a federally legal. And until then, the states will have to go on doing it the way they are. But I'm I'm quite sure that all these uh, medical marijuana shops and, and what is it illegal, uh, you know, these kids are, are realizing what to do with the cash and how to get it here and there and everywhere, but it's still a problem. Yeah. So getting back to what we were talking about, you were obviously making shitloads of money. You're, you're flying these 
huge shipments of coke back and forth. You're basically a coke star, as you refer to yourself, sort of like a rock star. But then at some point, things changed, and your partner Carlos betrayed you, as is portrayed in the film, and kind of forced you out and set himself up in some kind of compound on an island called Norman's K. Uh, the movie barely touched on some of the wild things that supposedly went on on that island. Can you clue us in a little on some of the juicier details about what was going on there? The island was, you know, a, a transport center, and my, my philosophy was always man on the move does not get busted, and, and the island was a bad idea. And so Carlos and I had disagreements on this, and plus I wanted to, you know, keep moving different routes in different places. But the island became a centerpiece for for every goddamn government, in the, you know, in the world, and it was only a matter of time until Carlos was brought down. Actually, he was brought down by a, a, a hired cheap pilots, and one of them was a, a worked for uh, he was an appliance salesman, sales and robots, and he had bought a million dollar home, and you know, and was busted at that home, and then he gave up, you know, everybody and everything, and and that's when that whole island thing went to hell in a handbasket. But I broke away from that, and I went off on my own. Of course, I was still working with Pablo. But to tell you the truth, I had reached a point in time where the thrill was gone, you know, and I didn't really belong there any longer. And I just wanted to walk away from it all. And I had money in the bank of Panama, Nova Scotia, and when Noriega um, nationalized the banks over the Iran Contra thing, and he confiscated all the money, everybody's money. A lot of a lot of money was down there for a lot of people, and including Paolo and the CIA, and the Contra and Iran money. So I ended up doing 20 years and coming out and really having very little funds at all, which was overwhelming too. I wasn't prepared for poverty and uh, <laughs> and so I'm 74 years old I just work for a living now signing books and I'm making appearances and what have you but at least I can open the door and walk out when I want and the only philosophy I can relate to is the woe unto them that call evil good and good evil so and what's happening today in the, the, the legalization they're going to legalize it in California and I know that for a fact in the November ballot and never in my wildest dreams that I ever think that would happen. And you know, it, it confirms the calculus of my rationalization sometimes, but and it's a whole different industry now. I feel like that I was John Wayne and, you know, and, and these kids are, are, are Obi Kenobi and Star Trek. So. <laughs> Yeah, what about the the quality of the pot now compared to what you were dealing with back in Mexico? It's pretty different, huh? That's incredible. That's it. I mean, you know, Americans have tremendous ingenuity anyway. And when I speak at some of these they some shows, uh, I tell like, these I call them kids, but they're, you know they're in the thirty some, I don't know, whatever. But when seventy when you're seventy four, everybody's a kid, and uh, so. <laughs> I just, you know, tell them that how amazed I am at, at what they've done. They're ingenious, and they created an industry that's so, so 
fantastic. Uh, and they, they are the, I call them the grandchildren of the 60s. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and after the 60s died out, I was wondering when, the, when another 60s generation would appear. And here they are. <laughs> Well, that's uh, that's that's a good way of looking at it. Uh, I hope that you know this generation is able to enact more of a. I mean, the '60s generation enacted a huge change culturally, but um, I don't think they affected the political or legal system as much as they could or should have. And things kind of slipped back, obviously, in the '80s with Reagan and further on after that. But I feel like now, hopefully, with with what's going on with the Bernie Sanders and the Occupy Wall Street, it seems like there is sort of a reawakening of that aesthetic of being in this together and helping one another and and about freedom and liberty. And and I hope that that takes root. You know. Well, I see that what's happening is when I went in, there were only cell telephones, uh, public phones. And when I came out, everybody was talking in these little boxes that are in. I didn't have time to talk to anybody else. But <laughs> what it is is that even though it consumes everybody's time and they don't have time for conversation, but it's an information machine. And in the 60s didn't have a real information machine. But the technology is now a gigantic, huge information machine. And, and information is power. And that's where these kids are, are able to get their power from. They're able to unite without ever talking to each other, and they can talk, you know, interact, you know, texting or whatever across the world in a matter of seconds. And it's hard to, to stop something like that. And, and I, I believe that that's the force behind what's going to liberalize and make things happen, and, and it's a powerful, powerful ticket to, to, to ride on. Absolutely. Um, I realize your parole uh, probably forbids you from smoking weed, but when your parole is up, do you plan to smoke weed again? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> cool. If I'm still around, <laughs> we'll see. Uh, how long is your parole? It's for eight years, but oh, my. I, they, after you do a couple of years, you can get off. And I got, you know, they don't need to. To watch a 75-year-old guy, 74-year-old guy, they have other things to worry about, I think, besides what following me, an old old man around. Yeah. <laughs> goes to bed at 9 o'clock at night. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they're going to be – I don't think there's much incentive for you to get back in the smuggling game at this point. The weed is everywhere. There's no reason to bring anything in. <laughs> no, you know, only a fool relives the past. So, you know – that's over and, and and done with, and I have a whole head full of interesting information that, and adventures that, you know, sometimes I just find myself smiling about it all. <laughs> yeah. One one final question before we uh, before we go, George. Um, uh, I was just curious. At the end of the film, uh, the text on the screen said that your daughter had never come to visit you in prison, and I thought that was really sad. Uh, that was back in two thousand one. Were you ever able to reconnect with her and form a relationship with her? I have, and you know, but in a way, she's a byproduct of her mother. Uh, and you know how an ex-wife can. I don't know if you have an ex-wife. If you don't, God bless you. Because <laughs> nobody should have one. <clears throat> but they affect the children a lot, and you know they have the time to basically deceive their mind against the you know, father. And 
we get along yet we don't get along but you know i can't dwell on that and and, and perhaps someday it'll all work out and it won't be a problem but i'm into enjoying my life and and i, and I don't have any regrets because regrets are, are wish pastime and i'm an existentialist and i live in the moment and look for the future and which you know is writing out on me also so i just allow the winds of fate to direct me right on man well i hope that she comes to uh realize and recognize uh what a treasure and an icon you are like the rest of us do and uh i wish you nothing but the best and uh lots of success and happiness and uh, i hope to be able to smoke a joint with you someday in the future Okay, that's a deal. We'll go to the Trident Sausalito, okay? Sounds good, man. Well, uh, George, thank you so much. Uh, It's been such a treat and such an honor to have you on the show, and uh, we really appreciate you taking time to talk to us today. Thank you very much. I love the interview, and I look forward to that date in Sausalito, okay? (laughs) It's a date for sure. Thanks, George. Take care, man. Okay, you're welcome. Bye-bye. Wow. I really meant everything I just said. It was really an honor to have uh, Boston George on the show. What an amazing guy. What an amazing life. If you haven't seen the movie Blow, I highly recommend you do so. For more info on Boston George and what he's got going on, you can check out our Facebook page, facebook.com slash blazingwithbb. Please follow me on social media, Twitter at Bobby Black, Facebook, Instagram at Bobby Black 420 I hope you enjoyed listening to Boston George's stories as much as I did, and I hope you will toke up and tune in with us again next week here on Blazin'. Until then, this is Bobby Black saying, Blaze on, brothers and sisters. (laughs) 